One of the blessings of coming back to a place like NBBI is you get to see what God is doing and get to sense the, the spirit of the place. Sometimes on your first visit, you don't know. But you come to a place three times and you realize what God is doing. There is a family spirit here. There is a warmth here. There's a Canadian warmth here at NBBI, eh? And I like it. I like it. And that's why my wife and I are here and just so glad to spend these days with you. Tonight, from Mark chapter 5, the man from the tombs, Mark chapter 5. Dutch novelist Harry Mulish said it this way, you can only believe in God if you believe in the devil as well. Tonight, we are going to look at a story from the ministry of Jesus that forces us to consider what we believe about the devil and his power in the world today. Of all the stories of demonization in the Gospels, without question, this is the most dramatic episode of all. These 20 verses, Mark brings to our forefront the story of a man so completely given over to demonization that hundreds and thousands of demons infested one man's life. One of the challenges of preaching on a topic like this and on a passage like this is that there really isn't just one sermon here. There's a whole bunch of sermons on this passage that you could preach. So I'm going to issue my disclaimer right up front. I'm only preaching my sermon from this passage. I'm not preaching every sermon that could be preached from this passage because there's a lot of questions here in this passage. It raises more questions than it answers completely. In our time tonight, I cannot hope to deal with all of them. That is my way of saying that at the end of the sermon, if you've got a question that you want answered, I probably don't completely know the answer to it. Because this is one of those stories that you can study and then study and study again because there is so much in it. The summary goes something like this. When Jesus and his disciples came to the mostly Gentile region of the Gerasenes, which was on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. They were met by a man whose life had been destroyed by demonic infestation. The demons in that man recognized Jesus, and the man bows before him. After the man confesses that there are many demons within him, Jesus casts out the demons and sends them into a nearby herd of 2,000 pigs. The pigs immediately rush off a cliff into the Sea of Galilee where they drown. 
When the townspeople learn what has happened, they ask Jesus to leave. Jesus agrees to leave, but not before refusing a request by the formerly demonized man to go with him. The man is instead told to go back and tell others what Christ has done for him. This he does, word spreads throughout the region, and everyone who hears what happened is amazed. Now, almost everything in this story is a little bizarre. A man comes to Jesus in a shocking condition. Jesus agrees to a surprising solution. Neighbors come to Jesus with a strange request. And Jesus gives the man an unexpected answer. Now, three worlds intersect in this strange story. The underworld of evil spirits. The visible world of human experience. The upper world of divine control. And this is one of the stories that must have gripped the heart and mind of the early church. Because this is a story that is mentioned in Matthew, it's mentioned in Mark, it's mentioned in Luke. So no matter whatever we may think about this and how unusual 21st century it may sound to us, here is a story that gripped the heart and soul and mind of the early Christians. They never forgot the story of how Jesus liberated a man infested with demons. Now, right here in the upfront part of the sermon, let us deal with probably the, the number one contemporary objection to this passage, which is there is an overwhelming tendency in our day, in our generation, in our world, to downplay the demonic. Even in some evangelical circles, there is, um, there is an uneasiness with a passage like this. And certainly, for those who are outside the church, looking from the outside in, they hear a story like this and they say, surely you don't believe in demons in the world today. They read about this and they say, well, this sounds like... Um, the demons are a symbol of evil. And they say this man clearly was, had some sort of mental illness or some sort of deep psychological problem. Well, it is not for us tonight to go too deeply into that question because um, having, having studied it to some length myself, uh, no one knows totally the full, how all of the spiritual and emotional and psychological factors of life may interplay. This is all I wish to say about that tonight. This story presents to us in a sober, factual manner the story of a man who was infested with demons. I think we are better off tonight simply taking the Bible the way it is written and reading it as the story comes to us rather than trying to read into it some sort of psychological explanation. Let us simply say we take the Bible at its word and we take Jesus at his word when he casts out the demons. 
He actually cast them out because they actually were in the man. I should say as a side note here, this is really mostly a North American problem. Our brothers and sisters on the mission field read a story like this quite differently. In South America, in the countries of Africa, in many parts of Asia, certainly in the country of Haiti, where I have visited a number of times, they read this and they say, yes, of course, this is actually factually true. Now, about the background of the story, we are told that they came to the other side of the sea, meaning the Sea of Galilee, to the region of the Gerasenes. Now, I have already mentioned a couple times already about going to the Holy Land. Sounds like I'm running a tour company here. I don't run a tour company. I just think it's good to go and visit the land of the Bible. If you ever do go visit the land of the Bible, your tour guide, no doubt, will take you to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He'll take you to the only place on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee where there is a limestone cliff. And what do you know? There are very ancient tombs carved into the hillside near that limestone cliff. Most likely, no one can be totally sure, but most likely that's the actual scene where the pigs ran off the cliff and into the Sea of Galilee. Now, how shall we look at this story? A lot of ways to outline it. Here's my outline. There are four prayers in this story. I'm using the word prayer very loosely, very loosely. Requests. There are four requests made of Jesus. Two are made by the demons. One is made by the townspeople. And the last one is made by the demon-possessed man after he has been set free by our Lord. So if you want to call him prayers or you want to call him requests, let's just use that as our way of following the story as it unfolds. Prayer number one or request number one comes in verse number seven when the demons on the inside of the man say to Jesus, do not torture me. I read a few verses. As soon as Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived among the tombs. No one was able to restrain him anymore, even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but had snapped off the chains and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And always, night and day, he was crying out among the tombs and in the mountains and cutting himself with stones. How did this happen? How does a man come to be in that situation? That is the first of the questions for which the text gives us no clear answer. There are those who suggest that perhaps this man has far gone into some sort of sin. That may well be true. However, the text doesn't tell us, and I'm assuming it doesn't tell us that because it doesn't 
really matter. All we know is, here is a man in a most hopeless situation. What do we know about the demons? We know they are evil spirits. We know that they follow Lucifer in his rebellion against God the Father Almighty. We know they were cast out of heaven. We know that in their demonic nature, they are evil through and through. As the Bible says, the thief has come but to steal and to kill and to destroy. Wherever you find the works of Satan, there you find destruction and death. Though on one level it may appear that Satan comes to us dressed as an angel of light. His intentions are only destructive. And here is a man, if you will, we have in this man um, the reality of Satan. Of, of satanic oppression with all of the nice cover removed. Sometimes Satan is made to appear as a funny man in a red costume with a pitchfork and horns. The reality must be much worse than that. Here is a man whose situation is so terrible that there is no help available for him. There is no restraint for this man. They bind him up with shackles. And with superhuman force, he breaks the shackles. They try to restrain him in a place. He gets away. He goes and lives among the tombs. Naked, wild, untempt, crying, screaming, cutting himself. A truly hopeless case if ever there was one. There are in the gospel records a number of accounts of men and women who are demon-possessed. And I think the better word probably is demonized, controlled by demonic spirits. But of all the cases in the Gospels, this is the most severe case. And I would say about this man among the tombs, right over this man's life, one word. The word is hopeless. There is no medicine There is no medication, there is no counseling, there is no therapy, there are no chains, there are no shackles. There is nothing that the world has to offer a man in a hopeless condition like this. We read on. Verse 6, when that man saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him and cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, I abjure you, one translation says. I beg you, before God, don't torment me. For he, Jesus, had told him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Of all the shocking facts in this story, more shocking than the man's condition is the shocking fact That this man, in his demonized condition, knew who Jesus was. What do you have to do with me? Jesus, Son of the Most High. His theology here is actually very good. He knows who he is. He knows where he came from. He fell down because even the demons believe. And they tremble before the Son of God. He knows Jesus' name. He knows who Jesus is. Son of the Most High God. He knows what Jesus can do. 
torture him eternally. So, just as a side note here, there are no atheists in hell. Because in hell, finally, they know the truth. At this point, the demons of hell are actually smarter than the atheists of the earth. The demons are not atheists. Why did the demon pray this way? Why did he ask this way? He didn't want Jesus to throw him into the abyss, the place of eternal and everlasting punishment. That is prayer number one, or request number one, do not torture me. Here now is prayer number two, or if you will, request number two. Send us to the pigs. Jesus performs what we would call an exorcism. He casts the demons out of the man. But before he does that, he asks the man interesting question. What is your name? He asked him. And look at the answer. The answer shows how confusing this situation is. My name is Legion. He answered him because we are many. Now, Legion, of course, was a term from the Roman military. I talked about that yesterday. I talked about the centurion, and the cohort. The legion was a group, was a, was a division of the Roman army, which would be approximately 6,000 soldiers. Now, 6,000 would be the normal. However, you could have a legion of 3,000 or 4,000 or 5,000. A couple of questions here, <laughs> among the many. Uh, why did Jesus ask him, what is your name? It's a profound question. He's asking him, do you even know who you are? Do you even understand what has actually happened to you. And look how he switches here from the singular to the plural. He says, singular, my name is Legion, to the plural, because we are many. The answer means, I'm so full of demons, I don't know who I am anymore. So I ask the question again, how did this man end up with thousands of demon spirits inside him? I mean, you can speculate about idolatry. You can speculate about promiscuity. However, not every idol worshiper ends up this way. And not everybody who gets involved in some of these gross sensuality things ends up this way. The Bible doesn't tell us, so I suppose it doesn't really matter. All we know is, here is a man in in the most extreme condition possible. I ended up this way, and I no longer know who I really am. Look at verse 10. He kept begging him. That, by the way, is a very good, cha- uh, very good translation. It's in, in the Greek, that's exactly what it means. This man is so desperate, he begged him, and he begged him, and he begged him, and he begged him. Now a large herd of pigs was there, feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. And he gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd 
of 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. Okay, okay, okay. Let's stop right here. Let me ask a couple of questions, all right? Question number one, whose pigs are these? Remember, in the Old Testament, pigs were unclean. The Jews were forbidden, were forbidden to have the pigs. So if, if there was, and this was Gentile territory, but there could be Jews living there. If there was a Jewish farmer who had a herd of pigs, it was in direct contravention to the law of Moses. It was clearly wrong. If it was a Gentile farmer, there was no law against a Gentile having pigs. So we really don't know whose pigs these are. Second question, far more problematic. How can demons enter animals? How can they do that? And do they do that today? And does that explain your basset hounds? I say that I've got two wonderful basset hounds that I wonder about. Sometimes when they bark and won't stop. Look, I can take the rest of my time. I can take the rest. Read the commentaries. Read the commentaries up one side, down the other. This is the only time this happens in the Bible like this. We don't really have anything else like this to compare it to. I preached on this once, and someone came up to me afterwards with an even worse question. So what happened to the demons after the pigs died? I don't know that either. All right. Is there anything, Pastor Ray, you do know? I keep telling you what I don't know. Is there anything you do know? Well, I assume that for all these other questions, they don't matter. Because if they mattered, we would have been told, right? Since we're not told, they must not be very important to our real understanding of the story. You know what What I do know is this? What really is important is that the demons can do nothing without Jesus' permission. They can do nothing. They cannot enter the pigs without the permission of our Lord. That is a very important point. Sometimes in our talk about spiritual warfare, which I think is a very, very important topic, by the way. I think we ought to talk about it. But sometimes in our talk about spiritual warfare, we tend to go to one of two extremes. Either either we get obsessed about Satan or we don't even talk about him and his strategies and his and the ways he attacks us. And also, I'm glad to see this about the armor of God. Sometimes we go to one extreme or the other. And I think when we go to this extreme, here's what we do. We give the devil too much power. We treat the devil as if he were God Jr. As if the devil was like 98% God, but God's 100% God. But if he really strains, he can beat out the devil. That's not true. Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. One Puritan writer called the devil God's lapdog. 
Hey, remember this. Remember this. He couldn't touch Job without God's permission. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 21. Luke 22, I guess. He said to Peter, Satan has desired. It means requested. Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. Meaning, Satan couldn't touch Peter without Jesus' express permission. The devil is not a free agent. He can do nothing apart from God's permission. If God is God, if he's truly sovereign, that must be true. So I got another question here, for which I will give you my best answer. How come... The demons ask to be sent into the pigs. Number one, so they wouldn't be sent into the abyss. Number two, so they'd have a bodily home for their evil activity. Number three, because they wanted to destroy the pigs. And I think number four, because they knew that this would stir up trouble for Jesus. If they can't inhabit a man, they will inhabit a group of pigs. Remember, demons are bent only on trouble and destruction. One final question, and we'll move on. Good, you Bible students can work on this later tonight. Why did Jesus agree to this deal? Okay? That's another question. Work on this. Students, work on this. Turn in your papers tomorrow morning. Why did Jesus agree to this? Hard question. Not fully answered. But I can think of two reasons, at least. There may be many more. Two at least. Number one, by casting the demons into the pigs, it was proof positive they had left the man. When the townspeople, when the townspeople saw all of that deviled ham floating out there. I just couldn't resist. <laughs> when they saw all that devil ham floating out there in the Sea of Galilee, and they saw that man clothed and in his right mind, the pigs floating were proof on one side. The man's changed life was proof on the other. There's a second reason I think Jesus agreed to this. To show us the relative values of pigs and people. Pigs are animals. People are made in God's image. People matter to God far more than pigs. He who is master of nature is also its ultimate owner. Those pigs belong to Jesus because he created them. He is saying by this act that one man is worth far more than a herd of pigs. Martin Luther, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph 
through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Prayer number three. The first two came from the demons. The third one, shockingly, sadly, comes from the townspeople. Leave us alone. Leave us alone. I read verse 14. The men who attended the pigs ran off and reported in the town and in the countryside. And people went to see what had happened. 2,000 pigs. Remember, that's a big herd. That's a lot of money. Today that would be a lot of money. Back then it was a lot of money. That's huge. That's a fortune. They came to Jesus and saw the man who'd been demon-possessed by the legion sitting there dressed in his right mind. And look at what the end of verse 15 says. They were afraid. Verse 16. The eyewitnesses described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. And I tell you, verse 17 is one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. Then they, the townspeople, who should have rejoiced, they, who should have been so glad to see this man transformed, they began to beg Jesus to leave their region. They were afraid. You'd think they'd be grateful. Here's the man for whom they had no answer. The man running naked through the tombs, screaming and cutting himself and breaking the shackles. The man so infested with demons, so, so beyond all human help, now clothed, now in his right mind, now sober and calm, changed, completely transformed by Jesus Christ. You would think there would be cheering. You would think... There would be worship. You would think they would bow at the knee, bow before a man with that sort of power. Um, they were afraid. Let me say something to you. Something you need to think about. Change bothers people. They were far more comfortable with this man when he was wild and out of control. They didn't have a category for him when his life had been transformed. That explains so many dysfunctional families in the world around us. It explains dysfunctional marriages and dysfunctional families. It explains why people stay in really bad, negative relationships week after week and month after month. It explains why people stay in relationships where they are being torn down and destroyed. Why? Because at least we know what to expect. The man they had called crazy was now perfectly normal, and they couldn't handle that. The man who'd run around naked was now fully clothed, and that bothered them. The man who broke their chains was now sitting quietly. They didn't even know who he was anymore. The man who once had a legion of demons now sits at the feet of Jesus, and that scares people to death. They couldn't handle it. Instead of rejoicing, 
They were afraid. What? Of the man? Maybe a little bit, but mostly of Jesus. Afraid of anyone with that kind of power. Why? Because what will he do next? In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis pictures Jesus as Aslan. The mighty lion. Powerful. And at one point, the question is raised. Is he safe? To which the answer is, oh no, he's not safe. He's a lion. But he's good. He's good. Jesus is not safe. But he is good. And so it is. There are many parents, many parents who weep and pray and get concerned when their kids get into alcohol or drugs or they get into sexual immorality. But you let those same kids get saved, born again, changed, cleaned up, and sent to a place like NBBI. And suddenly, the parents are angry. They were more comfortable with their kids the other way. And they're scared now that their young son or daughter has been transformed by the power of God. They're parents who weep and then get angry when Jesus works a miracle. You see, dysfunction they could live with, but Redemption by Christ was too much for them. Um, just, just write this down in your mind. You have to write this down in paper. Write down in your mind. Jesus doesn't stay where he's not wanted. You know what's really, 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 really scary about this? They begged him to leave. And he did. And as far as the Gospels tell us, he never came back again. Never came back again. They didn't like it that he disturbed the status quo. More people dislike Christ for this than for anything. Because when he comes in, everything changes. And lots of people can't handle that. They weighed the evidence. And they concluded that healing would cost too much. Would you please leave, sir? We'd rather have a few crazies around than to have our property destroyed. You know what? It's easy, easy for me tonight to make them look bad. But we might have done the same thing. You know... It's very convenient for all of us to keep Jesus at arm's length. We'd rather have Jesus out there at a distance because if he comes too close, he might mess around with something in our life and that wouldn't be comfortable. Many people are open to Jesus as long as he keeps his distance, but when he comes too close, they get uncomfortable. They like the gentle Jesus of the picture books, but the powerful Christ of the Gospels is too much for them. They like a marble Jesus they can touch for good luck, but they recoil from a Christ who demands their total allegiance. And some are against Christianity because Christianity 
threatens their business, their lifestyle, their habits, their personal morality. They are against Christianity because Christianity is against them. And all of us are apt to ask Jesus to depart when he comes too close and crimps our cherished plans. We want a gentle Jesus who will keep his nose out of our business and will take us to heaven but won't interfere in what we do on the way we live on the earth. We want a Jesus who builds our self-esteem and makes us happy. We want nothing to do with the Lord from heaven who calls us to take up our cross and follow him. And more than a few people today hear the gospel and then they say, if Jesus comes in, something else is going to have to go and I don't want to let go of that. The people, watch this, it's frightening. The people who came to investigate couldn't argue with the miracle. They admitted what had happened. The pigs are floating in the sea. The man's sitting right there. There's no apologetic argument here. Everybody agrees this man who was wild and crazy and uncontrolled is now clothed and sane and healed and in his right mind. They just said, yeah, we, we, we see what you can do and we don't want it. We will take the craziness over here. We can't take any more of this. If you don't mind, Jesus, please go somewhere else. Reminds me of St. Augustine, who in his confessions said that before he converted, he often prayed this, Save me, O Lord, save me, but not now. (laughs) He's not the first person, nor the last, to pray that way. Fourth and final prayer. This is the prayer of that man. The request of that man. Let me go with you. Let me go with you. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who'd been demon-possessed begged him and kept on begging him to go with him. Let me go with you. Uh, um, I don't blame him. If I'd been that man, I'd want to go with Jesus too. After all, he'd been set free. And you know what I think? I think that man sitting clothed in his right mind I think part of it was he was probably scared if Jesus left, he might slip back. Something something might happen. He didn't know very much. I can't blame him for saying, Jesus, let me go with you. But our Lord said, go back home to your own people. The ones who don't want me the ones who've asked me to leave, go back where they are to your own people and go and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how He had mercy on you. Here is one of the ironies of this story. He granted the request of the demons and sent them into the pigs. He granted the request of the townspeople And left. He refused the request of the new convert. Let me just say it to you this way. 
Answered prayer is not always a blessing. And unanswered prayer is not always a burden. Jesus found a demoniac. And he left him behind a missionary. He found the man as far gone in hopelessness as a man could be. And he didn't just transform him. He commissioned him and said, go back home to your own people. Go and tell. Go back and tell. Go back and tell them who I am. Go back and tell them what I did. Go back and tell them about my mercy to you. In the uh, earlier hour, most of you weren't here, but the Pete's were up sharing. This Pete stood right here. I heard you say it. You said you, you found out and you're happy about it. You don't have to be qualified in some big way to be used by God. That's what this story is teaching us. You don't have to learn a lot of verses or memorize a complicated outline. You don't have to be a good speaker or have a winsome personality. You don't have to get permission from anyone to tell your story. You don't have to write a book or preach a sermon. You don't need a big audience. You can start with just one person. You don't have to learn a foreign language or adjust to a foreign culture. Go and tell. Go and tell. Go and tell. That's what Jesus said to do. Anyone can do that. Don't let anyone tell you you can't do that. That does raise one issue. What has Jesus ever done for you? Has the Lord ever touched your life and changed you? Have you been a bystander all these years while others have come to Jesus? Isn't it time your life was changed? This passage helps us answer a very important question. Where does God want me? Where does God want me? The answer is, He wants you right where you are. You know how I know that? Because if He wanted you somewhere else, you'd be somewhere else. Since you're not somewhere else, He wants you where you are until He moves you somewhere else. What if you are the only Christian in your office, in your shop, in your factory, in your store, your club, your classroom, your neighborhood? What if you're the only Christian in your whole extended family? All the better, no cause for despair. God has put you there, cleverly disguised as something else. He's put you there as a lawyer, cleverly disguised so you can be a missionary. He's put you there as a teacher, cleverly disguised, so you can be a missionary. He's put you there as a pharmacist, cleverly disguised, so you can be a missionary. He's put you there as a daycare worker, cleverly disguised, so you can be a missionary. He's put you there as a salesman, cleverly disguised, so you can be a missionary. So, go back. Go back. Go back to your home. 
Go back to your factory. Go back to your office. Go back to your shop. Go back to your company. Go back to your classmates. Go back to your family. Go back to your neighborhood. Go back and tell them what great things the Lord your God has done for you. Tell them. And then tell them again. Because they probably won't get it the first time. One final question about this story. And we're done. Can this happen today? Well, yeah. Yeah, why not? Sure, we believe in the... We know the devil's at work in the world today. Could people be under demonic oppression today? Have no doubt about that. More deeply than that, can people far gone in sin be released? People far gone in addiction be set free? People who tonight, who are far from the kingdom of God... Can their lives be turned around by the life-changing power of Jesus Christ? What's the answer to that question? Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. No evil habit is beyond the power of Jesus. No twist in human nature cannot be straightened out by our Lord. No sin is beyond His forgiveness. No human situation beyond His healing touch. So if your life is a mess tonight, ask Jesus to deliver you. And when Christ answers, go and tell others what he has done. A number of years ago, a man by the name of John Oxenham wrote a poem about this text. And interestingly, he wrote it from the standpoint of the townspeople who ask Jesus to leave. And this is what the poem says. Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. Thou lovest men, we swine. Oh, get thee gone, omnipotence, and take this fool of thine. His soul, what care have we for his soul? What good to us that thou hast made him whole, since we have lost our swine? The Christ went sadly. He had wrought for them a sign of love and tenderness divine. They wanted swine. Christ stands without your door and gently knocks. But if you're gold or swine, the entrance blocks. He forces no man's hold. He will depart and leave you to the treasure's of your heart. This story is told in part so that we will examine our heart lest we say to Jesus, be gone, be gone. Don't come too close and make the same mistake they made 2,000 years ago. Let's pray. What a miracle, Lord Jesus, you did. What power you have. The demons tremble at your name. Hell shakes and bows before you. Mighty Lord Jesus. You 
have disarmed the devil and all the demons. Forgive us, Lord, for doubting your power. Grant us now true faith, boldness to go and tell what great things the Lord our God has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.